This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of the advertiser. The opinions expressed are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. All right, and welcome, Disability Law Show. We are back. So good to have you tuning in. We've got an hour to make you that much smarter. So 60 minutes, a little less, to give you a lot of knowledge in the world of disability law. If you've been dealing with a disability insurer, maybe you've been cut off or your application has been denied, You've been asked to appeal a billion times. Well, then that can all cause stress, but there is some relief. That in the form of education here weekly on this show. And to do so, Martin Willems is providing that information. You can reach out to Martin uh, when we're not doing the show. We always encourage you to do so. It won't cost you a dime just to pick up a phone and have a chat. Become that much more involved. 1-855-821-5900 is the way to do that. Help at disabilityrights.ca. One of our main topics in between all the emails and uh, questions we're going to get to, Martin, is what uh, you should know about invisible sickness and disability claims. That is on the way. But first, we always start off, pal, with the other week. There was something that you've been working on. What do you got today? Well, thanks, John. I've got something that ties into our topic today. Uh, As expected, and as we've been speaking about over the past year, I suppose, is we we were expecting to see more long COVID denied Mm long-term disability cases. Uh, or long COVID syndrome or COVID syndrome. I think it goes under various different names. Uh, Obviously, it is very new. If you want to call it a sickness or a a disease or an illness, it's being investigated. A lot of research is still being done on it, but it can be extremely disabling. And we see more cases denied with people living with or suffering from long COVID symptoms. And I spoke to somebody recently, well, this week, who had a very, very difficult time. Somebody who was extremely active before getting sick with COVID, um, used to do mountain biking, trail running, uh, Mm. swimming. Um, Somebody who is in their 40s and was just hit so hard by the symptoms of COVID and then unfortunately didn't recover. And this has been now going on for about 18 months. The symptoms, uh, brain fog, extreme fatigue, uh, having difficulty to concentrate, cannot walk for 20 feet and then has to sit down, has to rest. It is absolutely devastating when you have discussions with people who are going through this because we read these things in the news. We hear it on the shows, I suppose, hearing from people firsthand how badly and how terribly affected they have been with this horrible illness is quite devastating. So I I felt really bad for this individual who reached out to us. So the story is this individual had been paid by the insurance company for about a year and then a decision was made that at their end, at the insurance company's end, this individual's treatment was not no longer appropriate. Now at this individual's end they were doing whatever they could. They were seeing their doctor on a regular basis. They were going through various treatment sessions with a kinesiologist, etc. All within what is called an energy envelope, right? Because it's similar to chronic fatigue syndrome, which I will speak about later on in the show, where people, once they push themselves outside of that energy envelope, when they do a little bit more than what they should, when they don't pace themselves as they should, then they may suffer an exacerbation or they may crash, which then makes the the symptoms worse, 
may cause a, an ag aggravation that may last much longer or it may last for a few days or a few weeks or a month or so. Nobody right. knows because it's very individual. That's right. So this person is trying to do what they can within their capacity. And the insurance company then stepped in and said, well, we don't think that you are being appropriately treated, regardless of everything that they're doing. They've been referred to a clinic as well uh, and was being seen at a COVID clinic, a post-COVID clinic, and was discharged but still carried on at their own expense, trying to get proper treatment in place and then gets criticized for not doing what is expected of them. Now, bear in mind with what I've just said when I started speaking about this, we all know that COVID came about in 2020. It's very new and yeah. there isn't a lot known about it. So lots of research is being done. Doctors are looking into it. So who is the insurance company to then step in and say, well, we don't think you are being appropriately treated here when they, this person is doing whatever is being recommended mm, yeah. and beyond. So, sad story, it, is a, it was very devastating then to, on top of living with this and the stress of this, losing who this person was, now having to face a denial and losing the financial relief that this person had while following through and being able to focus on doing whatever recovery is available. So, I'm going to step in here and assist um, because this person... And, and again, I was affected by this discussion, is struggling so much to the point that they just want to give up. And yeah. that's the last thing anybody should do. But I understand why somebody would feel that way, because they're fighting this horrible illness, the effects of it. And on top of this now, there's this big insurance company who has stepped in and said, we don't, we've never seen you, we've never met you, we've never had a doctor assess you, but we think we're going to tell you what you should be doing in terms of this, co this long COVID syndrome that nobody knows too much about. We think we know better than your actual treatment mm. doctors. So yeah. the more I speak about it, the more upset I get with this, because this is not what this should be happening. These are peace of mind contracts. We've spoken about this so many times before which means that the insurance company owes this person a duty to objectively adjudicate this claim and to accept the evidence if the evidence is compelling. And the evidence is compelling here because this person, if you look at who they were, their work history and what they are going through to the extent that they've ended up in emergency when things got so bad, it is absolutely devastating. So when you, I speak about peace of mind contracts, the insurance company should be alive to these issues, right? This should not be a us versus you scenario. It is There should be a collaboration here. They should work together. And the insurance company should be paying these benefits to allow this person to focus on their recovery, if there is going to be a recovery, and to support them so that they don't have this extra stress. But I'm going to take that away now. I'm going to be dealing with this insurance company. They're going to work through me. And I'm not going to let them have any interaction with this person anymore so that this person can focus on their recovery. And I wanted to get this message out there because, again, I speak to lots of people who have disability claims, who have been denied short-term or long-term or critical illness or life insurance. And obviously, we're compassionate to anybody who speaks with us. But now and again, something like this comes along where my heart really goes out to someone who, like I said, feels that they want to give up. And what I mean by that, it is it's quite extreme, the things that they were saying to me. So... I'm going to help. I'm happy to help. But if you're listening out there, we act we, for clients. We represent clients throughout Canada, other than Quebec, with cases like this. Mm -hmm. So if you're listening and you have a claim that was denied, you know a friend or you have a family member, reach out to us because we can review your situation. 
We can look at the denial letter, the policy, your clinical records, listen to your story, and then give you what we think would be your options so that you can make an informed opinion as to how to move forward. Always reach out, right? one 821 5900 Help at disabilityrights.ca is the way you go about doing that. Let's get into this, pal. Uh, what you should know about invisible sickness and disability claims. Um, first one's the obvious one. What is an invisible sickness or disability? What is that? You know, because of what I've just spoken about, um, the person who I was speaking to earlier this week, this is very appropriate to have this discussion. What is an invisible sickness or disability? Sometimes when I hear this phrase, because you hear it from insurance companies as well, and sometimes doctors, I think that somebody living with this could be quite offended because the word invisible almost sounds like it doesn't exist. I've actually had somebody say this to me at a conference, a lawyer who was speaking, we were doing a debate, and this lawyer said to me um, in front of everybody while they were on the stage on the, um, presenting their, um, their paper that it's invisible because they don't think it exists and every, the, the crowd, some of them, found it very funny. And I got up and I said, well, actually, this is not the case because even the Supreme Court of Canada has accepted that invisible illnesses do exist. Yep. and that they can be profoundly disabling. And that is the case here. So I feel quite passionately about this. You have things like chronic fatigue syndrome. Um, another name for it is myalgic encephalitis, mm-hmm. fibromyalgia, chronic pain, and basically all mental health disorders. The reason why they are described as invisible is there is no X-ray or MRI or CT scan that may be used for imaging purposes to say, well, there we can see it. Like with a broken bone, you can do an x-ray, you can see, well, there's the fracture, we can see it, we know what's going to happen there, we know what the treatment is. There are lots of research projects on the go with respect to these, and again, I would include long COVID here, um, because these illnesses can be very disabling. And again, if we ask, what are they? They can be issues like mental health disorders where you speak to the doctor about what is going on with you, low mood, low fati- uh, profound fatigue, etc. So the point is, lots of it is based on subjective reporting. So you would be the person saying to your doctor, these are the things that I'm going through. And then the doctor may decide or may provide a diagnosis. So quite often insurance companies would say there's no objective evidence because we cannot objectively see what it is. But there's absolute certainty here that these conditions exist. We know that CFS, chronic fatigue syndrome, and fibromyalgia, and chronic pain, these are real. People experience them. Just because we cannot see them on scanning doesn't mean that they don't exist. And again, it's quite insulting to say to somebody this is invisible when they're profoundly disabled. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a thing for sure. want to get to more of this about how to best uh, combat that, uh, that reply from an insurance company. But we'll get into a short break here, give you some time to, to reset, maybe send an email along. How do you do it? Help at disabilityrights.ca. And you always have the opportunity to speak to Martin's team as well, one 821 5900 It's often a situation or a topic where you want to have more of a private conversation, so feel free to use that number and do that anytime you like. Any other questions, you have an anonymous website to do that, to do that with, either on your smartphone, tablet, desktop, called My 
disabilityquestions.com. You can use that anytime you would like. And we'll continue with the Disability Law Show in just a couple moments. Hang on. This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of the advertiser. The opinions expressed are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome back. Disability Law Show. Martin Willems is here. He's handling everything on the uh, the brain side of things. He's the guy with the answers. He's got the knowledge. He's who you're going to reach out to. And he's got a great team uh, working with him as well. Always ready for a phone call and a, a chat with you. one 821 5900 Help at disabilityrights.ca is the email address we're going to go to here in a few minutes. We started this show talking about uh, what you should know as a listener. All of us, I guess, about invisible illnesses, uh, sicknesses, and disability claims. Based on the fact that there's, you know, invisible, that's what they call them, because there's nothing on an MRI or a CT or an ultrasound, so on and so forth, they call them invisible. So how to get the best evidence when submitting a claim for the so-called invisible illness, uh, Martin, how do you go about doing that? The very first thing that you do is you make sure that you see your treatment doctor, treating doctor on a regular basis. So if you have a family physician, make sure you see them regularly so that when they complete the forms in support of your claim, they can give an informed opinion as to what the restrictions and limitations are. We always speak about what do you do when you submit a claim? What will the insurance company be looking at? And I've used this example many times. When you say you have depression, your doctor agrees that you have depression, you submit the form saying you have depression, therefore you cannot work, your claim is going to be denied. Why? Because you need to flesh it out. You need to explain what are the restrictions and limitations. A diagnosis is helpful, of course it is. But a disability claim is all about functional impairment. In other words, what are your restrictions and your limitations that prevent you from performing the essential duties of your occupation? And when you're dealing with an invisible illness, it becomes more difficult. So see the doctor regularly because you need your doctor on board to support your claim. And your doctor will feel more comfortable and empowered to advocate for you, if that is the word that I should use, to help you to get your benefits in place. Now, when I say see your doctor regularly, it also means reporting to your doctor the things that you are experiencing in terms of your condition, like I said, restrictions and limitations. And I'll use some examples here. If you have chronic fatigue syndrome, you may have brain fog, body aches, cognitive issues, in other words, poor focus, poor concentration. Um, You may have bowel issues, low energy. Those are the things that you want your doctor to describe in the attending physician statement when the claim is submitted. You want to make sure that the doctor addresses the restrictions and limitations so that the person at the other end, when they review the claim, will understand why it is that these things will prevent you from performing the duties of your occupation. When we speak about mental health issues, the same thing is uh, appropriate here. You may speak about low mood, low energy, uh, low motivation, poor sleep, oversleep, all those things that would explain why a person cannot work. I often hear from doctors when we are in the times that we live now where there is a shortage of doctors, there's a shortage of specialists, there are long wait lists, that patients have to be proactive as well. It's easier said than done, but that is some advice that I think should be given. Be proactive. If your condition is not improving, have your doctor refer you to a specialist, be it a long COVID clinic, be it some other clinic who specializes in the condition that you may have been diagnosed with when you have a mental health disorder and 
things are not getting better, see a psychiatrist, have your doctor refer to a psychiatrist, consider counseling, see a psychologist. If it's more of a rheumatological issue or if it is chronic fatigue, fibromyalgia, have your doctor refer you to a rheumatologist. Follow through with the treatment advice that they give you. Make sure that you report to them if medication has been prescribed, the effect of the medication, if it is working or if it is not working, or if, the, if there are side effects, that everything that you say to your doctors gets listed and documented so that these documents ultimately end up with the insurance company. If the doctor says to you, well, there's no availability, make sure that you get put on a wait list because understandably in the real world, there are wait lists. It's easy for an insurance company to say, well, you should be doing these things, but if it's not possible, you can at least show that you've been placed on a wait list. Follow the doctor's treatment advice. If the doctor is suggesting that you do something, do it, unless there's a, a profound reason why you cannot do it. For example, you may not be able to tolerate certain medications. Right. That would be explaining why you cannot do it. I would also say do some research on your own, like with long COVID. What does it mean? What resources are, are out there? Not all doctors know about it. So be proactive, look at what is available, access clinics if possible. And what I often hear from people who have these illnesses or conditions, some of them have joined online groups for people who have the same illness. Not to just espouse information out there and to report how things are going for you, but people may share information as to what clinics are available, what doctors specialize in certain conditions, what new treatments are available, and then you can share that with your doctor. I'm not saying go Google and diagnose yourself, not at right. all. What I'm saying is access some research online and see if there are groups that are legitimate and reasonable and then just do your own research to see if something may work for you that is recommended or not. Invisible sickness claims, you mentioned they're denied. I mean, you mentioned objective evidence. That's why they like to spring on these right away and deny them. But it, it, any other reasons why they would be denied? What do you think? Well, we often hear, and this is not just with invisible illnesses, it's quite often with others as well, lack of objective evidence. Now, mm. as I've said before, objective evidence from insurance company's perspective often would be medical imaging, right, or blood work. Um, if, if you have MS, there may be like MRIs of the spine, of the brain, that may show progression of lesions, etc. So that would be objective evidence. The struggle that you have when you're dealing with an invisible illness is you may not have that objective evidence. So they may say, we don't have that, we have lack of sufficient evidence, or there may be no specialist involved in your care, or the treatment is not appropriate. You've been taking the certain medication for a period of time, your condition has not improved, your doctor hasn't changed the medication, has not increased the dosage, so therefore we don't think that your treatment is appropriate. And ultimately, there's a lot of skepticism about the condition. I have seen insurance companies recommend to people living with chronic fatigue syndrome, also known as myalgic encephalitis, that they should engage in an aggressive rehabilitation program, which is focused on increasing their endurance and their strength. And it just goes to show that they don't often don't know what they're talking about. You would hear from doctors saying that engaging in a program when you have a condition like this that is focused on increasing aggressively your endurance may have the opposite effect. 
what is often recommended is low pace rehabilitation you should be working within your energy envelope you should be doing things within that because the moment that you step out of it you may suffer a relapse I have seen cases where people have done this they're on claim with the insurance company the insurer will say well we've spoken to our doctor who by the way have never met you or even spoken with you they've looked at your clinical records and they say that you should be engaging in this rehab program which we will be paying for and it may be a 12-week program or a 10-week program whatever it may be and it is geared towards increasing your endurance so that you can get back to work when at the other end you have a person who basically cannot even get out of bed most of the time because their fatigue is so profound so when they engage in some of these things they suffer a relapse and I have seen that happen I'm not saying by any stretch that this happens in every case I'm not saying that insurance companies push people to do this in every single case but I've seen it enough times to know that it happens and it continues to happen so if that is going to happen in your doctor speak to your doctor have your doctor weigh in on whether it is an appropriate treatment to engage in because if it isn't you don't want to do that you don't want to suffer a relapse where any gains you may have had is now gone and you're living with a condition that has been worsened where you may be facing a very prolonged disability Reaching out to Martin again, guys, as we carry on, one 821 5900 So if that denial comes for this reason, which is probably fairly likely, could happen, not always, but could happen, uh, what do you do? <laughs> well, you know what, it, it's, it sounds self-serving when I say this, that reach out to us, but I see this happen enough, as I, as I have said before. Yeah. Cases with invisible illnesses get denied often, and you reach out to a lawyer who handles disability claims. Like I said before, we handle claims throughout Canada other than Quebec. Speak to us, we'll review the claim with you and at least give you your options. And I would also say that you reach out to your doctor, your treatment provider, show them the denial letter, get their opinion. Because quite often doctors get quite very upset when they look at the letter and say, well, this is completely wrong. They're taking what I said out of context or right. they didn't look at these documents yeah. or they don't understand what's happening here. I've seen all of that happen as well. When we get involved, we take over all communication with the insurance company. So you don't need to deal with them anymore. We take it over and we continue to represent our clients. And we do have consultations at the outset, which are free. So initial consultations are free so that you can at least have an informed opinion. And then you make it a choice as to what works for you. Because your options may be that you're going to f follow through with an appeal. Remember, that is asking the same entity who denied That's your right. claim to now approve it. They've already made that decision. They're skeptical about these types of conditions. So if you do want to go through it, it's your choice. But filing, getting a lawyer involved, pursuing a legal claim, you very likely will be getting compensation. But again, it doesn't work for everybody. So reach out to us so we can look at your circumstances and you can make the decision as to how to proceed. I want to slide over, grab a, some emails here as we continue on the show. Again, email anytime, help at disabilityrights.ca. says, Martin, I'm applying for CPPD and I'm unsure of what uh, to put as my date of disability. Should I try to show them how my disability has worsened over time or just talk about when I became unable to work? What do you think? It's an interesting question. Um, when you apply for CPP disability, you have to prove two things. The first one is that you have sufficient contributions. So that's a financial test. During the time frame that you were working, did you contribute enough years in order to qualify? The other one is a medical criterion. Right. And that would be, you have to prove that you have an illness or a condition that is number one, severe, 
Number two, prolonged. And number three, prevents you from engaging in any gainful occupation. So I would say to this person and to anybody, if you became disabled as a result of an illness or a condition or an injury, and you're now at the point where you're going to be applying for CPP disability benefits, yes, you want to show how it has worsened because that adds to it is severe and it is prolonged. Yes. So you want to go back to the date that you initially stopped working because if you do apply for CPP disability benefits, they're going to look at your date of application and if it is, if you apply two years after you became disabled, it's going to be retroactive. The retroactive component generally is you will receive benefits 11 months retroactive from the date that you applied. So it's a good question. I understand why you want to show that your condition has worsened to get it approved, but that goes to the prolonged aspect and the severe aspect. Put down the date that you became unable to work. In other words, the date your disability started. Excellent stuff. Short break and back with uh, some more for sure. Some more emails. Send one along if it doesn't appear on the show for the remainder of this one. It'll appear possibly on a future show. Or if not, just send it along and Martin and his team answer them on the outside anyway. That is help at disabilityrights.ca. Phone number 1-855-821-5900. This is a disability law show. More coming up. Hang on. This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of the advertiser. The opinions expressed are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. And welcome back. Disability Law Show, your pro here again. Martin Willems ready to answer all of your questions. Andy can do so. Uh, you could just give him a call anytime. As a matter of fact, when he's uh, in the office, got his phone nearby, he likes to pick it up. It's either him or a member of his team will be sure to uh, sit and have a chat with you, clear some things up, give you some clarity, some knowledge. That is the whole point of this hour-long program as well. one 821 5900 help at disabilityrights.ca. That's the email address. As we roll down to, oh, we got lots coming. I'll give you another one here. Martin says, uh, Martin, my LTD was denied by the insurer because my employer did not put in the correct dates and it was submitted after the deadline. Denied due to contractual reasons. Is there any recourse for me? What do you think? I would think so, yes. I would definitely think so. So, you know, there's a difference between when you are denied because of on the merits, where the insurance company says, we don't think that you are disabled. Right. Therefore, we are denying your claim. And then you have things like this, where the contract may provide, the contract which I'm referring to is your disability policy, it may provide that you need to provide notice of claim, in other words, inform the insurance company of your disability within a certain period of time, and you also need to provide proof of claim, which, you know, is also a defined period of time. So in this situation, it says, my LTD was denied by the insurer because my employer did not put in the correct date and it was submitted after the deadline. Not putting in the correct date, surely that can be overcome. Mm-hmm. That was an administrative error. The yeah. person making the claim had nothing to do with that. If it was submitted after the deadline, how long after the deadline? And why was it submitted after the deadline? I, have, I speak to people often with similar situations. I actually spoke to somebody this morning whose claim was submitted two years late. Now, that's a long time, but we, we look at that. We want to know why was it submitted late. Is there a reasonable explanation as to why that was done? Because there's something, and this is a legal term, called relief against forfeiture. Forfeiture, yeah. 
where a, if this ended up in, in a trial where a trial of fact like a judge would make a decision, they could quite often award a person a relief against forfeiture, meaning that they will forgive you for missing the deadline because there was a sufficient reason. An example may be somebody applies to WorkSafe because they, they had a workplace injury. Mm. WorkSafe then pays the claim, pays it for a year and a half, then denies the claim. The person never applied for long-term disability because they were being paid by WorkSafe throughout this period. They didn't even know that they should apply. Then they apply, the insurance company turns around and says, no, you're too late. Of course, there is some risk there, but there's a valid and reasonable explanation as to why that happened. So I'm not saying that anybody who misses a contractual deadline has a valid claim, but I can say you this, very few of them, very few of them get turned away by us when we review these cases because there is always a reason why a person did not apply in time. Think about that. Mm -hmm. Why would you not apply for long-term disability if it is available to you when you are having financial difficulty? Of course you're going to apply because you're going to struggle. So if you don't apply, there will be a valid reason and and hopefully an acceptable reason as to why you didn't apply. So in this situation, yes, there may be recourse for you. Reach out to us. Again, we'll look at the circumstances, see why it was denied late or submitted late and what you can what you can do about it. Let's get to another one here. It says uh, Martin, my family doctor here in Alberta retired. She'd been filling out forms yearly at the request of the insurer since 2019. Now I have to find a new GP, which is very difficult, as you know. I'm concerned that I will not find a doctor that knows me and my LTD claim. Have you come across that problem with the lack of GPs taking on new patients? I'm not sure a doctor at a walk-in clinic would be happy to fill out forms not even knowing me. I know how important the support of a doctor is in the LTD process. What can I do? Wow. It's nervous. Stressful. Uh, that is stressful, and yeah. again, this is the reality that we have, not just in Alberta, but in BC, and I'm sure in other provinces as well, that people struggle to find doctors. Doctors yeah. retire. Doctors leave the practice. Doctors move overseas. Uh, I hear about these concerns on a weekly basis. So. If the doctor has retired, who's going to be completing the forms? I think you tell the insurance company, number one, that the doctor has retired. You do your best to find a doctor, and I mean, you can only do what you can do. There are also, from what I understand, some online services available where you may be able to access a virtual appointment with a doctor. It is true that it may be difficult, or likely is difficult, to have a doctor complete forms for you if they don't know you. But I would suggest explaining the circumstance to the doctor as to what is happening. If this is a long-standing condition, hopefully the doctor will accept that because previous doctors have completed the forms. Previous doctors have agreed that you are disabled. So hopefully they may be able to access through some online system the other records and continue to complete forms for you. If you have been on claim since 2019, that is a fairly long period, right? Because we're in 2023 now. So you have been accepted into what likely is called the any occupation phase of your policy. If you continue to be disabled, hopefully at some point the insurance company may not request you to submit forms on an ongoing basis and may give you a longer time frame where they may request for an update every six months or maybe maybe every year. So it really is a difficult circumstance. And again, I hear from people about this issue quite often, even people who do not have a family physician at all, who have never had one, when they get disabled. It is a very difficult thing to navigate. 
but also as I understand there are some nurse practitioners helping out these days in certain clinics um, if the worst comes to worst maybe have the nurse practitioner assist you with the completion of the forms um, speak to your doctor as to whether there are any other resources available for you uh, again go online see whether there are any resources which may indicate which doctors if any are accepting new patients because there are some resources like that out there I know that they are in Alberta I know that they are in BC and just keep phoning various clinics to see if you can, can get a family physician but if your claim were to be denied because of this it's not yeah. due to a lack of trying at your end policies do provide that you have to be under the regular care of a physician so that's a contractual term and it's a serious thing you have to be but is somebody ultimately really going to criticize you if you've shown all the steps that you've taken make notes of the times that you phone doctors when you try to get somebody to assist you when you've reached out to get a new family physician take notes of all the steps and all the dates so that if there were to be a denial at a later stage then you can refer to that so you can defend your position as to why you're still not seeing a physician couple more emails to go here we got time for that but we got to take a uh, a quick break first so we'll do that first and then come back with those uh, help at disabilityrights.ca that is the email address anytime the number 1855821500 by the way there's also a way to uh, learn on your own very simple concise easy to read non legalese uh, terms and definitions about uh, ltd you want to learn that and brush up ltdfaq.ca ltdfaq.ca is how you do that we'll return with more of the disability law show hang on this is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of the advertiser. The opinions expressed are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Yeah, we are back. Disability Law Show. It's a beauty. Got a couple more emails coming through. Thank you so much for sending them. You can do it after the show as well. Martin has a team going through them. Help at disabilityrights.ca and then the phone number one eight five five eight two one. 5,900. Uh, Martin, I'm confused about the my own occupation definition. Does it mean they have to keep approving my claim as long as I'm not able to go back to work doing my occupation at my existing employer? Or does it mean that I can go do my occupation at any employer? My insurance company keeps saying that if I'm able to go back to work at my employer that I will need to find another job at another company. Again, stressful. What does it all mean, pal? Very stressful. So this goes back to the contract, back to the policy. You will have two definitions. The first definition will be that you cannot perform the duties of your own occupation. The second one looks at any other occupation for which you've got transferable skills. Mm -hmm. Now that first definition, which I think is what this person is speaking about, they're referring to what does my own occupation mean? Does it mean that I have to be unable to perform the duties of my own occupation with my own employer or does it mean that I have to be unable to perform my own occupation for any employer you often get this scenario pop up when there is workplace bullying or harassment happening where the insurance company may say well we accept that you may not be able to go back to your own employer performing your occupation there but if we if you were to work at a different employer where the bullying and harassment isn't taking place you would not be considered to be disabled so therefore you can perform your occupation at that employer many policies do not have that wording in the definition some policies may say that you must have an illness or a condition 
that prevents you from performing the essential duties of your own occupation in any setting, meaning for any employer. It is also generally read in. So you do, I think you do have an issue if you're saying that you can perform your duties of your occupation somewhere else, but not with your own employer. Because the question would be why? Why is that the case? Because we're looking at a disability. You have to prove why you cannot work. What are the restrictions and limitations? And if you're saying you can work somewhere else doing your occupation, then what happened to those restrictions and limitations? Are they now gone? So it does become a more difficult thing to navigate if you are saying you can perform your duties at of your occupation somewhere else. Let's move on. It's a quick one. It's a good one, though. Great description, pal. Here we go. My uh, Would my retirement pension from another employer... Uh, other than my own occupation employer, who is the LTD policy holder, be used as an offset? That's an interesting. I never even thought of that question before. What does it mean? It's an interesting question. It goes back to the wording of the policy. So the policy will have two different types of offsets or deductions. The first one would be what is called the direct offset, and it likely will be CPP disability benefits, work safety benefits, um, and maybe something else. Okay. Then you get all these other things that are indirect offsets. And it may be that it, things like severance or if you have some other form of benefit coming in um, due to the same disability from another source, uh, that that may be an offset. Retirement pension from another employer other than through your own occupation, I don't believe should be an offset. But I'm saying this with the caveat that we would have to look at the wording of your particular policy. And when I speak about what is called indirect offsets, it's not a dollar by dollar offset. There's a specific calculation that is made and other sources of income like other pensions or benefits will form part of the calculation but will not be a direct offset. So the short answer is we need to look at what your policy says. Is this retirement pension that you're receiving from a different employer considered to be an indirect offset? I cannot see it being a direct offset but an indirect offset possibly depending on the wording of the policy. Again, the email address, guys, help at disabilityrights.ca. The phone number beyond the hour of the show to reach Martin and his team, one 821 5900 Let's uh, roll down a bit here. Another short one for you, Martin. Answer this sucker. says, uh, can my long-term disability insurer force me to take medication? They have threatened to cut me off if I do not. Wow. Well, so I don't like that word force um, yeah. uh, and whether this is the actual thing that's happening. I think what is happening here is maybe the insurance company is saying, your doctor is recommending that you take this medication. You've decided not to take it. Therefore, we're saying that you are not following through with recommended treatment advice or you are not being appropriately treated, which is your choice. But the policy provides that you have to do those things. Therefore, we are going to deny your claim. So I don't think, uh, no, not I don't think. I know no insurance company can force somebody to do any, take any medication whatsoever. That's, the, that's not within their power. Can they deny you based on something where you are not taking medication which was prescribed to you? Or another way of looking at it may be that the insurance company sent this person for what is called an independent medical examination. Say, for example, with a psychiatrist. And the psychiatrist is saying in that report, because the independent medical examiners are not treatment providers, right? They just give opinions. So that psychiatrist may say, well, I don't think this medication this person is using is appropriate. 
I suggest that they use this medication. Or if they're not taking any medication, they may say, I think this is the medication that they should take. Right. Then the person takes that report to the doctor, his treating doctor, and the doctor may say, well, I don't know if that's going to help, or maybe you've tried things before that haven't helped, and that psychiatrist didn't know about it, and then you make the decision not to go through with it, with that recommendation. I can see insurance companies taking the position that they are going to threaten to cut you off. If that happens, the first thing you do is you phone us because they're not in a position to tell you that you must take medication. There may be, it should be done based on what a doctor is recommending, but it is so fact specific. If you've tried various medications and they didn't work, or if you tried various medications and you had significant side effects, where I've seen people feel that they've become suicidal because of antidepressants that they were taking and understandably they stopped taking them, there will be a justified reason why that is not the case, why they're, not, why they're refusing to do so. So we would, we would want to see why that is happening. If it simply is, I refuse to take any medication, then there may be an issue because if your doctor is recommending medication use and you're, not and you're saying, I'm not going to do any of these recommendations, then the insurance company may very likely say that they're going to deny your claim. But again, we will want to know what the circumstances are so that we can evaluate what your options are. Let me get you a quick one here. You answer this one in about a minute and a half. I know you can. And that is, if I'm represented by a, a workplace union, Martin, can I still work with a disability lawyer or do I have to work through the union? That is a difficult question to respond to. And you know why I say that? Um, it really depends on what the collective bargaining agreement provides for. For example, in some instances, through the collective bargaining agreement, there may have been something negotiated where if benefits are provided, for example, through a trust, that the insurance company's role is that they only adjudicate the claim, but they don't pay the claim. The play, claim may be paid by a trust. And the collective bargaining agreement may also provide that you have to go through a mandated appeal process. In other words, they deny the claim, you then have to follow through that process. You don't have other recourse. You cannot involve a lawyer. I have seen cases like that, but it isn't in all cases. It is definitely not for all union members. It really depends on your particular circumstance. So can you involve a disability lawyer? I think generally, yes, you can, unless the collective bargaining agreement explicitly prevents you from doing so then likely not. But still, if you're a union member and you have a denied claim, do reach out to us and then we can see whether you actually can retain us or not. And with that, we are done. Thank you uh, for all your contributions to the show. We're back at it next week. In the meantime, to reach out to Martin, do so. Always encourage one 821 5900 and that email address once again, help at disabilityrights.ca. Catch you next time in the Disability Law Show. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of the advertiser. The opinions expressed are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW.